Thank, thank you very much, Martin, and thank you for the invitation to come along and talk today. Um, firstly, let me just say that I promise there are no, no clinical slides, so having just had lunch, you can relax from that point of view. Um, but also, I noticed that, uh, you probably noticed on the um, program, that I've been given a slightly shorter uh, slot, because I'm on my own, whereas the other speakers this morning and later on have all had support. Um, but what I, want to, what I want to present to you today is um, some information which is basically my doctoral thesis, um, which is looking at um, confidence levels of general dental practitioners. Now, I guess when most of you go to the doctor, the dentist, or your lawyer, or your accountant, you go there with a degree of confidence. You think they know what they're doing. And by and large, they do know what they're doing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, I wasn't going to pick on anybody personally, but um, but actually, how confident is that professional in doing what they're doing, and how confident do they feel they can offer you the best service? And part of that confidence is built from experience, perhaps. Part of it is certainly built from knowledge. That, that's for sure. So the gist of the study is to look at their confidence, and the context in which I'm looking at it is what we call a restorative dental practice program. Restorative dentistry is basically we do fillings, we do crowns, we repair things, we replace missing uh, bits and pieces. Um, and the restorative program at the Eastman Dental Institute has been running for many, many years in uh, various guises, but about, about nine years ago progressed from being a purely CPD activity of about a year uh, 18 months duration to now um, a fully-fledged university-accredited master's program. But it's only a master's um, on a part-time basis. At the Eastman, we have, um, those of you not familiar with the Eastman, um, we have two basic institutes. One is the Eastman Dental Hospital and one is the Eastman Dental Institute, which is part of UCL. Um, the hospital treats patients, obviously. Um, the institute teaches dentists. We are only teaching postgraduate dentists. We do not have any undergraduates in the departments at all. Um, and so therefore, we feel that we're in a position to particularly talk about postgraduate education, um, and, and as we don't have any undergraduates around at all. Um, my particular department is the Department of CPD, and the program that we're running is the restorative practice program on a part-time basis for general dental practitioners. And they come along and they do the program and they become uh, better qualified. They're already qualified dentists, they're already on the register, but they, they decide to do some further uh, studies. Um, they are all self-funded. So against what we've heard this morning, which many of these students are getting funding to some degree or other, all of our students pay everything themselves. And to do the five-year master's program costs them in the region of £40,000. Yeah. Um, we can perhaps discuss that later on. Uh, we'll look a little bit at the study, and I want to show you some of the results I've got of both quantitative and qualitative results that, that uh, I've generated, and a little bit about where the study is going to go in the future and the sort of work I'm looking at to do in the future. So the program, as I say, is a part-time master's in restorative practice. We take on approximately 70 graduates a year onto, the, onto each uh, program. Now, of, of late, that number has actually dropped. And perhaps from our first speaker this morning, we're getting some ideas of why it's dropping. 
Um, I've got my own ideas which perhaps we can discuss. Um, the programme is divided into three elements. The certificate year is the first year, the diploma is two years, and the master's re research project is a further two years. Now some of the students have managed to do it in four, some of them have got gone over the five years because they've taken a year out somewhere along the line. But by and, by and large, when the study was done, um, it was five years. It's flexible insofar as they can come in either on a Monday, a Wednesday or a Friday and get exactly the same teaching. It's also flexible because they can take a year out. So some of the uh, young, young women on the course, if they get married and have kids, may take a year out and then come back to it. That, that sort of thing. So it's quite flexible from that point of view. We teach in a variety of ways. We have certainly lectures, seminars, official ways uh, for, uh, of teaching. We also have a great uh, deal of informal um, peer review, peer groups, and we teach in peer groups. We sit casually <coughs> in the lounge area and the students discuss their cases. We interact with them in terms of, well, have you thought about doing it this way? Have you thought about doing it that way? Very much an interactive process in, in how we teach. And then on the, the far side of the screen here, we have what, what is euphemistically called a phantom head room. Um, we prefer to call it a skills laboratory, um, <laughs> where um, on, on fairly, fairly lifelike jaws, um, the students practice techniques um, that they're taught. And this, this idea of practice uh, and re repetition of, of skills is really quite fundamental to our program because we know that the more times they practice a skill the better they're going to get and, and eventually the more confident and competent they become. We use microscopes quite a lot so when you go see your own dentist if he doesn't have any glasses on you begin to wonder what he can actually see but we all, wear, we all work through microscopes now the students, by and large, do not have microscopes in their practices. Some of them will wear loops, which is a, a sort of 2.5 or 3.3 or 3.5 times magnification. Um, but we teach them with microscopes, so they get to see every single little tiny cell that, that they're working on. When the program was set up as a CPD program, it was set up by colleagues that didn't have any educational experience at all. They didn't have any idea about educational theory or anything like that. But they just thought it would be a good idea to do certain things in certain ways. Teaching in small groups, developing uh, the hands-on skills. Very much their day is maybe with an hour, hour and a half didactic teaching and the rest of the day is hands-on teaching. Um, so when I've looked at this, I've obviously then started to look at how the teaching actually is based on quite sound um, pedagogical teaching theories. So the constructivist theory, for example, we gradually build on their existing knowledge. We look to develop what they've already known rather than destroy it. But the bottom one is perhaps one of the more important ones, that we try to develop their powers of self-regulated learning. Because what we want them to do is to actually be able to go from the course and actually carry on with their ongoing education. This is not an end point at the end of the master's programme. It's not, it's not, some of them feel it is an end point, and they, when they spent five years doing it, you can understand why. But the idea is to try and encourage them that this is not the end point. They're going to carry on and do it, as indeed we have, all have to do CPD anyway. 
So the aims of the study, when, when I set it up, were I wanted to have a look at how changes in confidence influence the learning experience. So if their confidence went down, did it have an impact on what, how they were learning? If it went up, did it have an impact? To what extent do specific pedagogical teaching interventions have an impact on, on dentists um, and their perception of their confidence? Um, and in what way do these changes in confidence impact on their clinical practice? And that's probably the one thing that's quite interesting to you as consumers of dentistry. You actually want, if your dentist has said, I've been on this course, actually I learned nothing. So I don't know why I bothered wasting that day. But these, these students that we graduate have shown that they actually do uh, in, go back to their practices and really put a lot of what they're taught into practice. Um, so the, the sort of method that we are used on the, on the study were basically questionnaires to start off with, questionnaires that included the vast majority of the quantitative data that we were looking to collect, but there was some qualitative opportunities there with large sections left for comments and um, opinions to be, to be raised. And they did raise opinions. Um, I carried out focus group discussions, I carried out interviews, and throughout the five years of the study, uh, I collected field notes. So the study developed from being very much a quantitative study into being a mixed method um, study, uh, quantitative and qualitative. Um, the questionnaires were developed for the study specifically. Uh, I piloted them in 2008 and 2009, and the study it has looked at those students coming into the department in 2010 and 2011. Because if you then think about it, um, to follow those through five years, I've only just seen the final data for the 2011 cohort at the end of last year. Um, and I'm currently writing it all up, um, hopefully submitting in September. Um, so the pre-course questionnaire uh, was set out with this distinct uh, thought to find out from them what their current experience was. And that included how confident they felt, particularly in their communication skills, and how confident they were in their ability to actually do dentistry. Um, and you'd be surprised when we look at some of the results that there were on a scale of one to 10, some of them were way down around the three out of 10 margin in terms of how confident they are. Some of them were at the 10 out of 10 margin. So there was a complete uh, spread of opinion. There were, of the two cohorts, there was 144 in the whole study, started the study. So there was about 72 in each year. Um, at the end of the first certificate year, they had another questionnaire, uh, and that echoed many of the questions that were asked during the pre-course questionnaire in terms of their confidence and their experience and how their experience had changed uh, as a result of that first year. At the end of the third year, uh, at the end of the diploma, similar questionnaire was, was uh, submitted again. And at the end of the fifth year, uh, when they completed their masters, um, the final questionnaire was, was put to them at that stage. Now, the focus group discussions were all held within the first 12 months, within the certificate year. And I did that because, firstly, I had more of an option uh, in terms of how often they were in. I could either see them on a Monday, Wednesday, or Friday, and I 
as, as Martin alluded to, I'm still in clinical practice, so I have to devote some time to my patients rather than being in the university all the time. Um, so it was an opportunity to see as many of them as possible doing it in the first year. The second, third, fourth, fifth years, they're not in so often. Um, and so therefore, it was, a, it was an opportunity in the first year to see as many of them as possible. So what I did was I scheduled um, focus group meetings each on the Monday, the Wednesday, and the Friday. They were uh, invited to come in completely voluntarily uh, at lunchtime. Lunch was provided uh, for them, um, and they responded extremely well. The first lot came in in May, and we saw, I saw them all in May, and then I saw the same groups all again in November. So fairly uh, near the beginning of the course. Our academic year runs January to December. Don't ask me why, we're out of tilt with every other university, but it runs January to December. Um, so they were coming in May and November, and we had focus group discussions. I recorded all the discussions uh, and transcribed them and analysed all the data myself. Uh, interestingly enough, um, altogether we had 12 focus groups. Um, there were distinct differences between it, the groups. Some of them were extremely keen on chatting. Some of them actually had had too much to do that morning and really weren't very keen. They just really wanted to be in the pub at lunchtime. Um, but the differences were clear. Um, but there were also differences within each group. And it's one of the skills that I think I developed um, was enticing those quiet ones at the back to actually come forward and offer some opinion. Uh, uh, during the course of the focus group and to shut up the ones at the front who wanted to do all the talking. Um, and I've quickly learned the art of facilitating focus groups as a result of that. Um, but there was a big difference in terms of the confidence uh, aspect between the first and the second groups. The first group reported, uh, or the groups in May reported that they had lost all the confidence they had when they came in. And if they could fill in that scale of 1 to 10 that they had done on the pre-course questionnaire again, the, the scale with the, with the graph would have moved to the left-hand side towards, towards the zero. Um, one of the reasons for that is that they actually discover or discovered that they don't know as much as they think they know. Some of these people have been in practice for 20, 25 years and have been doing the same sort of thing day in, day out, it had worked reasonably well, occasionally it didn't work, so they tried something else. But they didn't know quite why it hadn't worked. So their confidence had actually taken a big hit in the first three or four months of the course. Um, and that, that worried them. It worried them hugely. Because these are professional people, they're paying quite a lot of money to come on a course, and you're telling them that they're no good. And they need to improve. So there was some quite interesting discussions with individuals about how they need to approach um, their learning uh, um, for the future so they can improve that confidence. And by the end of the first year, it had started to creep back up again. Um, interviews um, were done at the end of the fifth year, so at the completion of the whole five-year master's programme. I carried out all the interviews myself. Um, I'm the only one doing the study, so it was down to me to do it all. Uh, we've got uh, 21 interviews done, uh, which I think in a quantitative, qualitative study is, is a pretty reasonable 
um, number of people. And it began to be obvious that the same issues were being repeated um, from time to time. There have been some studies um, done um, suggesting in a qualitative study between one and ten in-depth interviews is sufficient. Other studies, another study I read was looking at 145 in-depth interviews, um, but there were five researchers doing it. So with one researcher, I think 21 was, was, was quite adequate. Um, each interview took about an hour, uh, and the students were offered the opportunity to either do it in the department when they were next in, or by telephone, or I would go and visit them in their practice or, or their home to do it. So they had flexibility in terms of where and when to do the interviews. And they were extremely helpful uh, in coming forward and volunteering. Um, okay, so some of the results that, that uh, I've got. Firstly, one of the things I looked at is why they actually wanted to do a master's programme. Because these are people that have got their qualifications, they have to fulfil CPD requirements of the General Dental Council, but no one's forcing them. What's their motivation to come in and, and put themselves through quite a strenuous uh, educational experience? About 65% of the 2011 group just wanted to improve their skills, which is you know, a, a predictable outcome. But what wasn't so predictable was that 35%, 37% of them felt that they needed to increase their confidence. And that's when the study took on a slightly different uh, perspective in terms of looking more at the confidence aspect uh, rather than just the, the impact of postgraduate education, dental education. Um, clearly, they wanted to increase their knowledge, and knowledge the increase of knowledge has also got um, a relationship with uh, increased confidence as well. Very few of them, in fact, I think of the 144 who started the study, only two of them said they wanted to get a master's degree. Their goal coming into this was to either get more knowledge or improve their confidence. So only two of them actually, which is totally contrary to what we've heard this morning, where people have come in and specifically are coming in to do a master's degree. It was only once they were in the system they thought, yeah, I'm going to stick with this, this is interesting, I'm learning a lot, I'm enjoying it, I'm meeting new people, I'm going to carry on, I'll do the second year, third year, fourth year, and so on. And so, on. so this is a different type of, of student than perhaps we, we're, we're used to um, looking at. Um, so the confidence became an important aspect. The um, sort of demographics that we're looking at, um, we've got quite good response rates to our questionnaires, over 70% in both, both years. Um, interesting enough, more, we, more women than, than men. And this is a reflection of the dental profession and the medical profession now. There are much, many more undergraduate female doctors and dentists than there are male. Whereas 15 years ago, it was the other way around. When I qualified, there was barely 8% of our intake uh, were female. But now we're looking at the dental dental profession being somewhere in the region of 65% females, which is, which is interesting. Um, the age range, sort of 26 to 49, and similar uh, in, in 2011. Um, and the number of years they were qualified is also quite similar. Most of them 
um, are in what we call a mixed practice. Now, a mixed practice does a little bit of national health service work, a little bit of private work. Most of them were coming from that sort of... And the reason I was interested in that was I wanted to see if there was going to be any change in their practice type as they went through the programme. The demographics then change slightly um, as they go through. This is as a result, this is after the diploma. So this is three years into the five-year programme. The numbers have dropped considerably. We lose around about 60% at the end of the first year. Now, the speculation, and it's only speculation, is that firstly, because actually they've achieved what they wanted to achieve. They've increased their skills, they've increased their competence to a certain extent, they've got out of the study what they wanted to do. The other thing that I'm, I think may have happened is that some of them suffer with fairly low self-efficacy and they realise that actually they've got to the limits of their capabilities. And those capabilities are fine, just to reassure everybody, they are fine, um, but they're not, they're not progressing uh, any further. So they decide to opt out at that point. I think also the financial aspect comes in. Don't forget we're dealing with a reasonably young cohort of students here, um, you know, mid-twenties to, to fifty, say. They've got new families, they've got mortgages, they've bought, bought businesses, bought practices perhaps, um, that is very expensive to buy and equip a practice. Um, just to give you some ballpark figures, to put one surgery into a, into a building is about £65,000 today. So, you know, on top of the fees and everything, finance clearly is, is, a, is a thing. Um, so the numbers have dropped quite considerably. I, th I think there's various other reasons why numbers drop off. We're pretty much 50-50 in terms of uh, in 2010, but slightly more women in 2011. And this figure was a little bit disappointing because um, at that stage we had some administrative issues in the department and they forgot to hand out the questionnaires basically um, and you know, reliant on uh, administrative support to do that sort of thing. Um, the age range stayed pretty much the same so the, the group uh, didn't change from that point of view at all. We weren't finding that the older people were the ones that left the, the, the scheme, uh, some of them stayed on. Um, and so, and so the number of years qualified um, remains pretty much uh, unchanged. Um, then the last questionnaire looked uh, at, the, uh, at the end of the Masters um, and we can see the numbers uh, are not a little bit lower again, but most of the people that finish the diploma convert to do the Masters. So over the two years I had 25 students um, doing their Masters degree, which, which for a small department is, is quite um, a workload when you're looking at, at supervising uh, and marking uh, and examining uh, 25 different dissertations. Um, in this year there were many more females um, than males, almost twice as many. So that, that was another uh, move of the demographics. Um, and uh, otherwise things are, are obviously their mean uh, years qualified have gone gradually gone up. Um, what I also was keen on is actually how much they'd enjoyed the experience. So I think enjoyment um, is quite an interesting one in terms of uh, it, perhaps if they've enjoyed it more, they will get more out of it. 
Uh, and you can see the range is quite uh, good, or oh, a big range here. Someone actually thought they only got one out of, one out of ten um, in terms of their level of enjoyment. They still got their masters, but they clearly didn't enjoy the research project and, and that experience. Um, but they had enjoyed it up until that moment. So, um, some of the graphs, uh, just to, to share with you, um, this is about, once again, about their confidence. Confidence levels comparing their age groups prior to the start of the program in terms of communication and ability. Um, and we can see here that the older people in green actually are less confident than the younger ones. And maybe that's what we, we expect. We, we know young people are often quite confident and, and uh, self-assured. So maybe that's what we, we, we're looking at. Um, but similarly in um, the ability. The ones that concern me are the ones at this end of the scale. Uh, because someone who's only got uh, three out of ten confidence in how they can communicate in, in a profession that demands communication, but clearly need, needs some support and, and help with that. And one of the, the limitations of the, of the study is that um, I dealt with the whole cohort. I didn't deal with individuals, so I can't follow an individual student through their progress of the five years because all these, all these questionnaires are anonymous. Um, there are one or two things I could have done in hindsight that um, I haven't, but um, this, is, this is looking at the whole cohort rather than individual people. So it would be interesting to know where this chap, or chapess, went at the beginning of the course to where he or she is at the end of the course. Um, but you'll see that they do all move to the right a little bit. The, the ones here on the right who've given themselves 10 out of 10 for confidence, this, to me this points out one of the limitations of a linear scale. Now you can argue whether you do a ten, 1 to 10 or 1 to 100 or whatever, but the problem with this is where do they go from there? Where, how do they mark their confidence levels the next time I ask for that information? Does it go down? Does it go up? They can't go up because they're already at the top. And I think this is one of the limitations and one of the reasons that I was more interested in looking at the qualitative data. Are we all right for time? Ten minutes. Ten, oh, right. Better go move on then. I'm going to skip through some of this then because I'm going to get to the qualitative stuff, which I think is perhaps more interesting. Um, but similar shape graphs for um, the number of years they've been qualified and, and their confidence levels. Similar shape graph for um, gender as well. Although, interestingly enough, the females seem to be more confident. And there were studies in the medical world that, uh, from years ago that actually indicate totally the opposite. That the male medical students and male graduate medical students are much more confident than females. My study is showing the other way around that the females are now more confident than the males. Um, so, I'll just skip this picture. So this is, um, at the end of the study, uh, completion of the whole master's programme. And you can see there's nobody left at the far left-hand end of the scale. Everybody's moved. Their confidence level has gone up. Um, and they've moved to the right-hand side of the scale. Um, but the qualitative uh, data was um, much more informative, I think. And... I decided, when I started to analyse the data, 
um, to do it on a thematic approach. I looked at doing other systems, phenomenological, grounded theory, but I decided the thematic approach was appropriate because themes just leapt out of the page at, at me. And, and that's the way I went with the, the uh, um, analysis. So this analysis, this is the sort of themes that we got at the end of the first year. Um, time was a, a certainly an important thing, um, organisation, relevance, uh, but confidence is there. Some of them increased their confidence, some of them decreased their confidence. Um, some of them became, had the ability to undertake more complex techniques and more complex work and offer their patients um, more options uh, for their treatments. And at the end of the diploma course, once again, similar sort of uh, themes that emerged. Um, the confidence one was a strong one. Uh, at this stage, they nearly all improved their confidence. Confidence went up um, according to um, discussions with them and um, the comments they put on questionnaires. Um, they became more self-critical. They became more reflective in what they were doing. Uh, this is something that we introduced um, at the end of each day. Another study I did was on, on reflective learning. Um, at the end of each day, we now have a reflective hour with, it, with the students. We sit down in the common room and discuss the day's teaching with them. And they talk amongst themselves about what they've got, how it's going to impact on practice and, and so on. And that seems to be a very popular thing with the students. Um, at the end of the uh, program, confidence was, was a distinct thing that was, was very important to them. Um, many of them had more confidence as a result of the knowledge. And uh, this term evidence-based uh, knowledge was, was very uh, significant in, in their uh, interviews and in their comments. Uh, because they were beginning to advise patients on an evidence-based uh, way so that they could actually justify everything they were doing. Confidence of the dentist, but also confidence of the patient. They found that their patients were saying, yes, I actually had that done. I can understand exactly where you're coming from. I know what's you, all the explanation you've given me is great. I understand it all. I'm going to have that done. And so the conversion rate, if you like, from suggesting a treatment to actually having it done uh, increased. Uh, and that gave them confidence, and, and the inference is that the patients had more confidence in them. Um, they got confidence as a result of particular learning pedagogy. And the main one that they got confidence from was working in peer groups. They really enjoyed sitting down together with a tutor and discussing their problems, their cases, issues, with the, the tutor facilitating it rather than running a seminar. And, and that seems to have uh, generated a lot of confidence um, with, with uh, all the students. Um, some, of the, some of the examples of things they said, um, student 14, and this is where you realise that they are all anonymised, um, I wanted to improve my knowledge and skill because of the influence of a friend of mine who started to do the course a year earlier, she told me a lot about the course and what a big influence it can have on your work. And somewhere in the region of 70% of our students come to us through word of mouth. Um, we do advertise, but still about 70% come through word of mouth. So if they're getting a good learning experience, they're telling their pals, and, and that's how we, we, we fill cases. Um, 
The second one, I hadn't done any formal training in a number of years. There are new techniques that I need to know about. The younger dentists seem to know a lot of things that I didn't, so I had to update my knowledge. So here's someone, who, an older um, student, who's realised that he's actually falling behind the times and needs, and one or two of them came out with similar comments because they're actually um, vocational trainers and they suddenly realised that their vocational trainees knew more about things than they did. So they come on this sort of programme to, to improve their knowledge and skills. Um, confidence, yeah, I feel more confident in communicating with patients as I have the most up-to-date evidence-based information and believe I'm doing my job to the best of my ability. That makes me confident. So these are the sort of comments that they come out with. And I'm conscious of the time, so I'll, I'll whiz through this a little bit. Um, the top one was a, a, um, one of my field notes comments rather than a, a, from an interview. Um, I've come from a background of problem-based learning as an undergraduate degree course, and I've found the lecture-based plus practical teaching to be great. So here's someone who has, is looking at a different sort of educational uh, idea from their undergraduate training but actually is appreciating it and, and, and uh, getting value from it. Um, student 17, yes I reflected on what I was doing, what I could have done differently and yes definitely the start point was occlusion, was emphasised during the course was so helpful. Occlusion is how teeth actually work together, run, you know, how you chew basically. Um, motivation, what motivates a 50 year old to suddenly embark on a new career in a, in a university department when he can quite happily work for the next 10-12 years and retire without anybody being critical of him. Yeah? Well, a lot of them wanted to do it because they realised they needed more knowledge, more information, they were teaching as I say, um, and just for self-satisfaction as well. That, that comes into it. So these are the sort of things. Some of them were motivated by family. Family saying, get off your backside and go and do something. And the, the interesting thing is that of all the students who finished in this study, the 25 who finished and got their masters, only three originally put on their UCAS form they wanted to be dentists, which I found somewhat surprising. And now they've got their master's degree in dentistry. The others were people who wanted to be architects, civil engineers, doctors, obviously. Um, biochemist, all these sort of things. But only three originally put on their UCAS form they wanted to be a dentist. Um, how's, how is it relevant to clinical practice? Well, yeah, um, the bottom one, it's just been a positive impact on my practice to my patients and myself. I'm able to inform them in a constructive way, in a systematic way, in an organised way, because I have more knowledge than I can explain to them what the alternatives are, the options, etc. So that was sort of typical of the comments that, that came back on, on that. So um, just to sort of sum up, um, the, the students, make, one of their main reasons to come on the programme was to improve confidence. And, and by and large, they, well, they've all done that. Um, knowledge, the gaining of knowledge was a huge aspect of increasing confidence. They felt they could actually communicate in a much more authoritative way with their patients and with their and with their peers. One of the interviews, one of the girls I interviewed, um, actually said she's not afraid to talk to colleagues about things now, whereas before she thought, "Well, oh, I don't think I'd better discuss that. Maybe I'll get something wrong." 
Now she feels she can go out there, she can discuss any aspect with a colleague and put forward her argument and know that she's got an evidence-based argument to, to uh, substantiate her points. Um, we talked a little bit about the linear uh, measure and the limitations on that. Um, they did have self-doubts. Some of them expressed self-doubts part of the way through the course. Can I do this? Am I going to finish it? And I think the thing that got them over that was some good support from, from personal tutors, um, good feedback, positive feedback in a constructive way um, also helped them. Um, and of course the small, small group peer learning um, was, was considered a major part. Um, I'm going to continue to collect this sort of data for the next three or four years. Um, the study is basically 2010 and 2011, but I've got data from 12, 13, 14, 15, um, so that maybe I can then um, publish something on a sort of after 10 years or something like that. I think that'd be quite quite interesting to do. Um, I also want to look at using confidence as a measure, an indication of um, academic achievement, because there are studies that show that you can actually use people's level of confidence to measure their academic achievements. And that's quite helpful because then if you've got students that are struggling, um, academically struggling, perhaps if you can then increase their confidence that will help them to achieve more in the future. Um, good. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Peter. Yes, we've got about 10 minutes for questions.